You're listening to the Branches HB Podcast. This morning, we're going to be jumping into Matthew chapter 14. So open your Bibles there if you've got your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. One of the ushers will pass one to you. We are back in our series going through the Gospel of Matthew. A great couple weeks in word and deed when we focused on that theme in the scriptures. You'll see this is a great dovetail, Matthew chapter 14, where Jesus basically demonstrates in his own integrity, not just this preaching of the gospel, but this ministering from a place of the gospel to other people. It's a, it's a perfect connection. But some of you are going, wow, we're still in Matthew? In Matthew chapter 14, there's 28 chapters in this book, and we started this back last Christmas. What's going on in this church? We really take our time working through these books, and that's true. That's true, because we all want to care most about what God is saying. We want to base everything that we do as a church community out of what Jesus has spoken, out of what God has spoken in the Word of God. We believe that this is the raw materials that the Holy Spirit uses. This is the lumber and nails that are used to fortify our souls. We don't need to rush through it. You know, we don't need the pyrotechnics and, you know, the flash and the bang and no substance. We just need to be rooted in what God is saying. So that's why we're moving through this book. And it's been a rich study up to this point, even as we're halfway through it. To catch you guys up to speed, you know, going through those early chapters of Matthew, Jesus established his public ministry. And we started seeing some of the various responses to that ministry, including the increasingly hostile opposition of the religious establishment. And now as we, you know, move forward through this halfway point of the book, you're going to see that, man, Jesus' ministry has gotten to a point of maturation. You know, the pictures he's going to give us of the kingdom of God and his nearness are more vivid than ever, and the intensity is going to heat up. And I think that tone and that vibe will certainly be conveyed in one of the two narratives that we're reading this morning here in Matthew 14. And I call this sermon, which is two narratives side by side, Uh, A tale of two kings, because in these two narratives that I'm going to be reading, you're going to see this juxtaposition between Herod Antipas and Jesus, and you're going to see two wildly different character profiles between these two individuals in two wildly different feasts, in two wildly different settings. So let's read here together, Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 1. The verses will be on the screens. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, that's Herod Antipas, heard the reports about Jesus And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John the Baptist to be a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. 
When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So as I said, Matthew 14 here, two narratives side by side, which give us a great juxtaposition between two very different characters in two wildly different feasts. And the first narrative, the first story begins with uh, the attendance of Herod Antipas telling him about Jesus. You know, Jesus was really popular at this point in Matthew's gospel. Actually, in Matthew chapter 12, two chapters ago, in Matthew chapter 13, one chapter ago, in both of those places, it's mentioned that he has a large crowd that is following him. So word is traveling fast about what Jesus is doing and what he's saying. And that word is traveling all the way up to Herod Antipas, who is the ruler of this region where Jesus is doing the bulk of his ministry in this area called Galilee. And I think he's haunted by a little bit of guilt, and he's haunted by some fear. So when he hears the reports about Jesus and what he's stirring up among the people, he sort of blurts out this superstition. You know, hey, wait a minute, is this John the Baptist who's back from the dead? Is he, is he resurrected? And a lot of times this is the case in the ancient world, also in our world today, that when you've got these larger than life influential figures and they die and disappear, a lot of times people don't actually believe that they're dead. Maybe they're back. You know, Elvis sightings. You remember that? Some of you remember that. You know, Elvis is here. He's over there. He's not actually dead. Tupac. Tupac's not dead. He's still making music. You know, it's, it's all a sham, right? He's back from the dead. Uh, you know, you got that feeling, right? It's this larger than life person. Like, you can't contain their spirit. And so he sort of blurts that out. But wait a minute. John's dead? We didn't even get that detail in Matthew's gospel at this point. Last we heard about John the Baptist, he was in Herod Antipas's prison. And he was there because Herod had actually married his half-brother's wife. He divorced his wife, and she divorced her husband, his half-brother, and they got together. And John the Baptist is out in public preaching about this moral failure of the leaders of this particular area, though they appeared to be very religious and all that. So Herod heard about that preaching, and he said, I'm going to throw you in prison. Well... Now he's dead. What's happened? And in verse 3, Matthew kind of does like the wavy lines, you know, like in a TV show when you're going back in time. We got we to fill in some details. So reverse back to when Herod is throwing himself this posh party at his hilltop fortress overlooking the Dead Sea. There he is, and Herodias, his half-brother's wife, is there, and so is her daughter, his stepdaughter. And, uh, you know, actually, they're kind of related as well because her, that young girl, her grandfather was Herod Antipas's father. But, but she's dancing around, and it's kind of suggestive what's going on here. He's very pleased with the dance, right? And if you're feeling like this is seedy and off, then you're tracking with me. You totally get what's going on in this passage. And I guess he's pleased so much, he makes this public oath. He says, you know, anything she wants... 
I'll give to her. This young girl, this young daughter is the term that's used for her. She's really young. And uh, creepy, right? I mean, we're there. But this young woman, Salome is her name. We know that through history. It's not mentioned here. She goes to Herodias and says, what should I ask for? And Herodias says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a dinner platter. Of course, this is because she is angry with John the Baptist for denouncing her publicly. So sure enough, this young girl goes to Herod Antipas and says, this is what I want. I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And he is distressed, it says in the scripture, and he's distressed for a couple of reasons because he can't break Jewish law. Jewish law would say you can't execute someone without a trial, but that's what he's going to do. And then on top of that, John the Baptist is actually loved by the people. There's a populist movement happening in his region that he's ruling that's all about John the Baptist. But he's so like taken up in this oath, and he's got these dinner guests, and it's this wonderful party. He doesn't want to ruin the night, so they behead John the Baptist. And then you've got this beautiful little heartwarming family scene here, right? When John the Baptist's severed head is presented to this little girl on a platter, and then she carries that head over, the head of, by the way, the most righteous man who'd ever lived up to that point, according to Jesus. The head of that prophet gets delivered to Herodias. What a nice little posh party, right? Man, Antipas is like this classic worldly king. And this scene is a classic party for a worldly king. He's a king of the world. And these are the sort of leaders that we're accustomed to, not necessarily because people are getting beheaded and their heads are being transferred on dinner platters at parties, but, you know, just kind of the corruption and the lack of morality and the self-interestedness. Like, we're used to this in our leaders in our culture, right? I was at a meeting uh, with the city about homelessness and the initiatives that they're stirring up. I'm representing Serve City, the collaboration of churches, how we might partner with the city in addressing homelessness. And, you know, at these meetings, there have been really, you know, big wigs there, you know, insurance company executives and hospital executives. And, uh, you know, the council members are there and, and all these different folks representing private, you know, companies as well as the local government. And they're talking about how they're establishing these initiatives and, and that every time they go to do something as a city, they face backlash, they face opposition from the citizens. And they're going, why? Why? What do we do? Why is this going on? And I spoke up. I said, well, you want to know why you're facing backlash? It's because people don't trust you. They don't trust you. Americans don't trust politicians. And they don't trust people who lead these institutions. Why? Because a lot of people are driven by votes and by money. It's all about self-interest. So when you provide something for the people and you say, this is what we're going to do, there's this feeling like, well, what's in it for you guys? Is your heart really invested in this? Because we're so used to leaders manipulating us, leaders taking advantage of us. We've seen a lot of Herod Antipases in our lifetime, right? And we've seen it over history. We've seen it in our lifetime over and over again. Did you know, this is what's so interesting about Antipas and his character profile, which reminds us of so many other leaders we see in society. He wasn't even a king. He wasn't a real king. He used the title. He flirted with the title all the time. He really wanted to be a king. Like that was like something bred into him. His father was a king, but when his father died, he went to Rome and he begged the Romans for the title that his father had. But at the last minute before his father died, he wrote him out of the will. 
These guys got family issues, right? I mean, the relationship triangles and this whole writing out of the will. It makes your family problems look like no big deal, right? Gets written out of the will, so he doesn't get the title of king. He gets the title of Herod the Tetrarch, which means ruler of a quarter. Nothing's more a stab in the back than that, right? Ruler of a quarter? And he had to share that ruling, you know, body with his brothers at that time before they were fired later on. But all that to say, here is this classic worldly king. Someone who wants a title and power that they have no claim to whatsoever. Always scratching and clawing for more influence. And living above the law. Living above the law that they are given the authority to enforce. They're supposed to be enforcing the law as a ruler, but they live above it. Reminds you of anything that's ever gone on in anywhere? You know, <clears throat> French laundry. Right? I mean, we're adding it up. It was the thing that happened during COVID. Somebody went to a restaurant and wasn't wearing a mask and was really close to everyone, but our beaches were shut down. So makes a lot of sense, right? They live above the law, even though they're called to enforce the law. He divorced his wife unlawfully, and then he throws a prophet who's actually speaking the truth of God in prison about his moral failure. And then he executes him without any trial whatsoever, living above the law, even though he's supposed to enforce it, and feasting and indulging himself in an atmosphere of violence where the most righteous man up to that point in the world, his head is sitting on a dinner plate. Sorry, Herod I'm having Antipas, trouble with the connection. King of Please try the again in a moment. World. And then we have the second narrative. We have Jesus the king of the world, who we come to in a completely different setting. Verse 13, lakeside at the Sea of Galilee. He's seeking solitude. He'd been told of the death of John the Baptist by many of John's followers. You assume they don't have anywhere else to go. Probably many of them even joined Jesus's band. And Jesus likely withdrew as he did when John was first in prison. We were told that in Matthew's gospel because the pressure around him was increasing. Jesus's ministry, if you go through the gospel of Matthew, it's sort of like this pot that boils and then gets taken off the heat. And then it gets put back on the heat and boils again and has to be taken off the heat because it's not yet time for his confrontation in Jerusalem for him to go to the cross. So he withdraws. But I also sense in Jesus's humanity, the premonition about what would occur to him when he hears about John the Baptist dying. You know, like every time I go to fly in a plane, I go on, you know, air travel, I have this premonition, I have these visions, these flashes of me going down in a heaving ball of flames and exploding. Like, it's never happened to me yet, but every time I go fly, I can't help it, but I get these images, right, of what is going to befall me. But in Jesus's case, it's much more accurate. He hears about this unjust execution, this ungodly execution of John the Baptist, his head on a platter, and he begins to see his fate, these flashes of what would befall him, sort of like what he had to wrestle with in the garden. I believe he's dealing with all of those emotions at this moment. Now, when he arrives in this place of solitude that he's escaping to, to recenter himself and his heavenly father, to recoup from all the pressure of the crowds, it says that the people had actually heard where he was going. And they ran to that place. So when he got to the solitary place, it was no longer solitary. There's tons of people. And you'd think at this moment, right, 
that Jesus is feeling something similar to what it feels like when you get home from a long and arduous day and you're exhausted and you're fried and everything's just taking everything out of you and you finally sit down, you kick up your feet, you take off your shoes and there's an unexpected knock at the door. Like, uh, are you kidding me? I've just given everything. I've just done so much and there's somebody at the door right now. Are you, you want to hide, but your cars are out in front. You can't hide. You've got to go to the door, but Jesus doesn't do any of that when he sees the crowd. There's no deep sigh. There's no groan. There's no let's shove off and actually find that solitary place that we're looking for. It says he had compassion on them. The best way that you could put that into English from the Greek is that his heart went out to the people that he saw at the lakeside the second that he saw them. We already see the difference in these two kings, these character profiles, whereas Herod Antipas you know, and his company, they, they just have this total like party of self-interest and it's this violent kind of drama that takes place between all of these individual people you know, with their agendas. And then we have Jesus, this true king, not a false king like Antipas, who is unreservedly selfless, unreservedly selfless. And he went to work healing the sick. Now it says, after some time, Jesus has been ministering to all these thousands of people. Evening was approaching and the disciples thought it wise to close up shop. All right, Jesus, you got to wrap this up here. All right, It's, it's evening. We're in the middle of nowhere. These people need to eat. You know, they need some provisions. And Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. He says, you take up this responsibility. And they candidly assess the situation. Jesus, we've only got five loaves and two fish. These guys are the paragons of rationality at every turn, right? They're like watching the clock, like, oh, yep, that sun's going down. You know, they got about 10 miles on the journey, so they better leave about now and arrive at, you know, and what do we have to eat? Well, we've got exactly this inventory of food here, right? They're bringing up all like the practical obstacles to Jesus doing his work. And Jesus says, just give it to me. And says he took the provisions that were not nearly enough for the thousands in front of them. Imagine like the comedy that this is, five loaves and two fish. He holds it, you know, before the masses of people, the thousands, and praises God for that provision that is not enough and then proceeds to break it and hand it to his disciples and his disciples hand it to the people and it keeps passing hands, passing hands, passing hands, passing hands. And it keeps going until everyone has eaten to their full satisfaction and there is an abundance left over. In the end, the meal that was not enough was too much in the hands of Jesus. I really believe that's a word that's just been sitting with me all week long a word that can minister to some of you and what you're experiencing right now. This meal that was not enough, not even close to enough, was too much in the hands of Jesus. They ended up at the very end with more left over than they actually had begun with, these 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Again, you see the difference in these feasts. 
You know, one took place in this fine dining hall with all the accoutrements of luxury and yet was a violent contest of egos. And this one is happening in a solitary place on a hillside with the meagerest of provisions. And yet it was marked by commonality and community and compassion because Jesus was the host. And it's this foretaste, like it's a little sampler, an appetizer of the kingdom of God. Because the same way Jesus breaks this bread, right, and blesses the meal is the same thing he does at the Last Supper when he takes the bread that is his body and he breaks it and passes it around and passes around the cup that is his blood. And again, it's a taste of what will happen when he returns. He says, we're going to have another feast. We're all going to be back together. And I'm going to sit as host over the meal and I'm going to bless it and I'm going to hand out the provisions for everyone and you will be satisfied forevermore. God will take the not enough of this world and leave us all with an abundance. I really enjoyed studying these two stories. I really enjoy retelling this narrative because I love dwelling on the exceeding goodness of Jesus as opposed to the failed character of man. Because I think that's the two portraits here, the exceeding goodness of Jesus and the failed character of man. What was the character of Jesus? For one, his heart goes out to us. We can see that. He considers us. Psalm 144, verse 3. The psalmist is kind of stuttering and thinking about this very thing. You know, how is this possible? Lord, what are human beings that you care for them? Mere mortals that you even think of them. Man is like a breath. His days like a passing shadow. This idea that here's Jesus with his needs, this desire to go to this solitary place to recoup, and then he sees the people, and he chooses to set aside his agenda and care for these common people who are human beings, that you would care for them. If we're just a breath, if we're just a passing shadow, what is going on here? It's like the relationship we have to an ant. You've met some ants in your life, right? How did you treat those ants? You remember any of them? Remember them by name? Remember the experience you had with them? No way. No way. The, the scale, the size and the scale, the difference there. That's what I'm trying to identify. You look at an ant, you think, that ant can provide for me nothing. It's powerless. It has no influence. You know, it's a passing flower. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. It's out of your mind. It's forgotten. And yet, Jesus demonstrates that our Father in heaven cares. He sees he knows Antipas and his company had no regard whatsoever for the value of even the most valuable human life. And yet Jesus set aside his own agenda for the most common of all people, the crowd that he met at this lakeside. And do you see his care covers the gamut of our hardships and maladies? The first thing he does when he gets to the shore is he heals the sick. Now, I know we've just come out of a, you know, crazy kind of time dealing with health and, you know, our, the scare in society, but it pales in comparison to what they faced, medically speaking, health-wise. You know, they're dealing with a 30 to 50% mortality rate among infants. Can you even fathom that? A 30 to 50% mortality rate for infants. That, that's their daily life. That's just what they knew. For these working class people in rural Galilee, their life expectancy was 30 to 35 years. They were familiar with pain. They were familiar with suffering. 
These people that Jesus is ministering to were faced with a constant barrage of images that reminded them of the curse of sin and death, and their only relief was to be in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus met those greatest needs everywhere he went. And it wasn't just to the greatest extent that he cared for the people. He cared for them in the most mundane and superficial. The fact that they were hungry. He made them a meal. The disciples are a bunch of Mr. Practicals, right? I mean, they're the ones going, look, Jesus, we care about these people. It's getting late. They need to get on with their own duties and, and get back so they can eat and provide for their own food, you know? And like, that is like the classic way that we express care, but it's not really care, you know? It's concern. And we think that's caring. You know, Jesus, we're very concerned for these people that they need to get on and get with their responsibility to feed themselves. You know, it's like, oh, I'm very concerned for that dysfunctional relationship that you're in. I'm very concerned about your job situation and the longevity of it. Thank you for caring so much that you have this thought about what I should be doing. You know, that is not true care. Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're not. It dismisses the concern. He says, we're going to take responsibility for this. We're going to feed these people. And it's the same character that we see of our Father in heaven. Jesus told us he feeds the birds of the air on a daily basis. And if he cares much more for us, how much more is our heavenly Father going to feed us? You know, a lot of the leaders of the world, a lot of the kings of the world, a lot of even leaders in the church, what can be spoken of them is what's said in Jude verse 12. The statement that they are shepherds who feed only themselves. I think a lot of us have encountered that. There's a lot of people in society that are rulers, that are kings, that are people of influence, even within the religious community, even within the faith community, who at the end of the day, their real agenda is just to eat. They're entrusted with a role of shepherd. They're supposed to be caring for sheep, the people beneath them, and instead all they do is feed themselves. Herod Antipas is even worse than that. He feeds off of other people. He's enjoying this feast and all the luxury while someone's head is on a dinner plate. All to further his agenda. And Jesus, Jesus was the shepherd of not the exclusive party. He was the shepherd of the inclusive banquet who gave himself, who served us his own body and his own blood so that we might be filled to satisfaction. Are you guys tired of earthly kings? Are you sick of earthly rulers? Kings of the world? I have such a great encouragement for you. We don't serve one. That's not who we serve. We serve the king of the world. In Psalm 72, verse 11, it says, May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. And I hold on to that promise with all the earthly kings and earthly rulers and all these influencers and authorities that every single one of them is going to be brought down from their high hilltop fortress with their posh party and they're going to take a knee before Jesus. Every single last one of them will be humbled before him. But for us who call Jesus king, 
I want to call you. I want to exhort you. I want to encourage you to give him all your devotion, your veneration, your worship, and let none of that go to any earthly person besides Jesus. He comes to serve you. He's the only one who can invite you to this eternal banquet where true spiritual satisfaction is found. And it's an environment, nothing like what we saw at Herod's party. It's an environment of commonality, community, compassion, love, and purity. And the beautiful thing about Jesus, which we see right here, and God our Father, is that he turns away none who come to him. He won't turn away anyone entrance into that banquet, that feast. Not any who come to him. None will be put to shame who trust in him. I have a few pastoral points I want you to consider as we reflect on this passage. Number one, I want you to know, and I know it sounds cheesy. There's no way to say it besides a way that sounds cheesy. But I think it cuts to the core for us. Is that Jesus makes time. Jesus makes time for you. If this is the image, the perfect image of our Father in heaven... In Jesus, he's setting aside his own desires, his own needs to minister to the common people in front of him. He makes time for you. Question is, do you make time for him? Make time for him. This is the most ironic thing about our relationship with our Father in heaven. Who are we that you would even be mindful of us? We're a breath. We're like a passing shadow. And yet he is mindful of us. And yet he sets aside time to know us by name, it says in John's gospel. But here we are thinking we've got all these important things to do, all these priorities in our life, so many things going on, we don't have time to stop to be with Jesus in prayer and devotion. I mean, just be blown away by the exceeding goodness of God that he makes time for you. Will you make time for him? I think another thing we see here is that Jesus won't turn you or I away. He doesn't turn us away. He ministers to everything from the greatest, deepest need that these people have, facing death, facing pestilence, needing healing, physical healing. He goes around. He doesn't care what time it is. He'll stay there all the way till evening to make sure that everybody's ministered to. He'll go to the greatest extent, and he'll also do the simplest of things, the most mundane of things. Jesus won't turn you away in your needs. Approach him. Approach him with your needs. You know, a lot of us want to be self-made people. We want to be independent. We want to go it alone. Jesus said, this is how you're going to pray. You're going to pray for your daily bread. That's how much you're going to depend on your Father in heaven. That's what it's like to live in true spiritual life. Jesus won't turn you away no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what your need is. Approach him. Approach him daily with your needs. And finally, Jesus alone brings satisfaction. He can take the not enough in this world, the meagerest of provisions of what we have in our hands, and he can turn it into an abundance. Too much. More than we even need. That's what that eternal banquet is going to be like, but that's the sort of ministry he does in us by his Holy Spirit even today. He can take the not enough of this world and he can make it too much, an abundance, more than we would ever require 
So seek abundance in him. I want us to go before the Lord in prayer together as a community, and then I'm going to invite up the ministry care teams to the different corners of the room so that they're available as well. But let's pray together first as a, as a body together. And Jesus, we first of all come before you just praising you for your exceeding goodness, that you're not a king of this world. You are the king. You are the king of the world. Every other king is going to kneel before you. You're going to hold accountable those who are in the seats of authority and all the corruption, all the self-interest, all the votes, all the money. You're going to wash all that away. I just think that that will be our reality one day where we're serving you as we're serving you today, but in the completeness of your kingdom without any of those worries or concerns. You, the host at the head of the table. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to be at the table, that you would make time for us. How is it that that occurs? But Lord, even more so, how is it that we could deny that time? Let's imagine the roles flipped, like we're the one in the boat, and you're on the shore waiting for us to arrive, and we choose to just shove off and go to another location. Do we get out? Do we go to be with you just like you went to be with the crowds? Lord, help us to make time for you as you've made time for us. Thank you that you don't turn us away. You actually want us to come to you with our needs. Maybe we've got massive needs today. We've got a marriage that's completely got nothing left. We've got a stage four diagnosis that we're bringing before you. Jesus, you invite that. You'd stay with us until it was evening to minister to us. And at the same time, Jesus, it can be the simplest of requests. Maybe we're just looking for the food on our table tomorrow. And you say you'll provide that. Thank you, Jesus, that you don't turn us away. Help us to be people who don't think we got to go it alone. We can come to you, depend on you and all of our needs, that we would find satisfaction in you, Jesus. So many of us look at what's in our hands, in our bank accounts, in our lives. We think it's not enough. And yet, Jesus, in your hands, it can be in abundance. It can be more than we could ever imagine. So, Lord, teach us to find our satisfaction in you, to trust you with the meagerest of provisions. Thanks so much for listening to the Branches HB podcast. For more information on Branches, you can visit our website at brancheshb.com or stay up to date with us on Instagram at brancheshb. As always, we'd love to have you at one of our Sunday gatherings. So come visit us at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Locations are available on our website. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.